Hello and welcome to the latest IFG Live event. Today our focus is on the Windrush scandal. It was a crisis that demonstrated a failure of British law, politics, policy and bureaucracy. People with every right to be in the country were forced to leave, lost their jobs and treated with hostility by the government. The government's response to the scandal was, among other things, to commission an independent review to ensure the lessons of this failure were learned. That review was led by Wendy Williams, who I'm delighted to say is joining us to discuss her work. Wendy is Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary and Her Majesty's Inspector of Fire and Rescue Services. She was formerly a solicitor, a partner at a law firm and a legal director within the Crown Prosecution Service. Wendy published the Windrush Lessons Learned Review last month at almost 300 pages. It's a thorough account of what went wrong and what needs to change. It includes some really powerful personal stories about how this scandal affected the lives of families and individuals, but it also looks at the institutional problems that drove it. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. So I want to get started on some questions, but before I do, I just want to thank everyone who submitted their own questions. Uh, we will try and get through as many as possible kind of scattered throughout the discussion. So to get started then, Wendy, I mean, I try to give a brief flavour of what we mean when we talk about the Windrush scandal, but it really doesn't do it justice. I wondered if you could set out a bit about um, what we're talking about when we talk about the Windrush scandal, who was affected and how. Yes, the Windrush generation came to the UK from the Caribbean um, between 1948 and 1973. And it's important to make the point that they were invited here to help rebuild post-war modern Britain. And that was a place that most of them came to call home. They were British and they had every right to be here. And the 1971 Immigration Act makes that clear. But the problem was that they weren't given the documents to prove their status, nor did the government, and in this case, the Home Office, keep official documents. Some did register their status, but others didn't. And so when successive governments set out, and this was really in the 80s, 90s, and well into the 2000s when successive governments set out to prove that they were being tough on immigration, they introduced and extended a set of immigration policies, and in particular, the hostile environment policy, which was designed to deter people who had no right to stay in the UK from being here. But the problem was that those members of the Windrush generation who hadn't registered their status were caught up in that hostile environment net. So they were required to prove their status, but by that stage, the standard of proof was unreasonably high. And needless to say, many of them were unable to prove their status. And when that happened, they lost jobs, lost homes. Some of them lost access to public services like healthcare. And in extreme circumstances, 
they were locked up, they were detained and returned to their countries of birth. Now, it's worth remembering that in some instances, these were countries that the individuals hadn't seen for some 40 or 50 years. So that is the, that's the Windrush scandal in a very large um, nutshell. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really helpful. And do we, do we have any idea about the number of people who were affected by this? I mean, you talked about some of the implications from, you know, the one end, just the kind of difficulty of living your life within the UK and at the other end of the spectrum actually being deported. I mean, is there is there a way of understanding just how widespread this problem was? Sadly, there isn't. Various organisations have tried to quantify exactly how many people were affected, uh, including the ONS, the Office for National Statistics. And they put out a report probably about a year ago where they assessed the numbers are probably amounting to tens of thousands because we do know that about half a million people migrated to the UK from the Caribbean between the late 40s and the early 70s. We also know that about 400,000 of those individuals had their status regularised and so the ONS has assessed that the, the number could be as great as 100,000 people. But the difficulties are that, as I indicated, Joe, um, the Home Office kept no records, mm. um, no records of people who came, and um, so it's difficult to quantify. Even now, the Home Office's systems aren't set up to be able to identify and differentiate between different individuals, uh, what their country of origin is, what their ethnic origin is, and um, what uh, their circumstances are. But what we do know is that since the Windrush Task Force was set up in, I believe it was April of 2018, some 8,000 people have been able to have their status confirmed. Um, but that, even if the number is, as, uh, is at 8,000 people, I would say that's 8,000 people too many. Yeah, absolutely. And we got an interesting question in actually on this kind of topic from um, someone called Aaron Gee, who's an independent consultant. And he was wondering whether there was kind of evidence through your review that that the implications of the Windrush scandal and the effects went beyond just um, those who arrived, that cohort that arrived before 1971 in the post-war era, but actually has impacted current generations and potentially could impact subsequent generations. I mean, is that something that you picked up um, when you were doing your, your review? Yes, it was. Uh, I carried out a, a series of roadshows around the country uh, to hear from individuals and their representatives and their families who had been affected. So I went to, I started off in London and I had a couple of uh, events 
in London, but I also went to Nottingham, to Bristol, to Manchester, and to other places. And at one of the meetings, I think this was the meeting in Leeds, there were two individuals present, one of whom was um, a Windrush person, if I can put it that way, mm. but the second of whom was her granddaughter. And her granddaughter had, had, um, had lost a, a place at university because her grandmother hadn't been able to, to prove her status, and therefore her mother hadn't been able to prove her status. And so the granddaughter, who had a place at university, had lost it. Um, oh, wow. And that was a story that came through in a couple of the other um, uh, roadshows as well. And so the effects of the Windrush scandal had been far-reaching. That's a point I think that sometimes gets lost, just the knock-on implications for future generations is is really interesting. So I, w I want to kind of turn to what we see as the, the main causes of this, if you like, and we've kind of, um, in your description setting out at the beginning, you managed to touch on quite a few of them. And to start, I guess, looking at the things in the more immediate run-up to when um, the kind of scandal reached peak um, in terms of public awareness, if you like, in uh, 2018, but of course was happening behind the scenes even if it wasn't being reported on and in the public consciousness in the same way for the months and years leading up to it. And I just wondered if there were, you know, you mentioned the hostile environment policy as one of the things that really kind of brought it to the fore. Is it fair to say that that is the kind of the biggest short-term reason in the run-up to kind of 2018 that really drove this thing? Or were there other issues as well that were kind of floating around at that time and driving the kind of um, very public and acute issues that we were seeing? I've said that uh, in the report that the Windrush scandal was a long time in the making. And I say that deliberately because the origins of the scandal can be traced back over successive governments and over successive decades, starting with the legislation in the 60s, 70s and 80s, the intention of which was to restrict the opportunities for certain groups to live and work in the UK, and which were acknowledged, some of those uh, acts of Parliament were actually acknowledged in casework as having what, the, what were called racial motivations. So I think the origins go back over a considerable period of time, but then they culminated in the desire of all of the three major parties to demonstrate, particularly in the 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s and 2010s, that they were being tough on immigration. And so a series of policies were introduced, and the, home, the hostile environment policy was one such. And uh, I think the first person who coined the term hostile environment was Liam Byrne, um, mm. and that was in 2007. 
And it's fair to say that in 2010 and thereafter, the coalition government and then the Conservative uh, government really took the lead when it came to the hostile environment policy because the policy was developed and extended in, in terms of its reach. So, yes, it is um, the scandal occurred principally as a result of the approach to migration that was set out in the legislative framework. But the major point was that the Windrush generation had every right to be here. And so they shouldn't have been caught up in the hostile environment policies. And this is where the other factors come to the fore. So there were institutional factors, there were policy factors, there were casework factors, but there were also cultural factors. And so in terms of the policy, I set out the policy intention, but that policy intention, that intent did not apply to the Windrush generation. And so the Home Office, and its uh, officials and ministers should have realised that there was a risk that the hostile environment policy would apply to individuals who had every right to be here, had status, but lacked the documents to prove it. And sadly, the Home Office officials were unable to bring that out in my report, I point to a Home Office circular which flagged this up as a risk in 2008 and said, uh, way back then, if individuals come forward who form part of this cohort, they should be treated with, I think it was the terms used were discretion and sensitivity. And basically, um, you should ensure that um, their cases are dealt with appropriately. But sadly, because the Home Office and its officials lost sight of this group, mm. they failed to appreciate that this group needed to be safeguarded and, if anything, their cases should have been dealt with differently. And so they set this high bar, this high standard for individuals to meet and I think many people would struggle to demonstrate that they've, they've been in the country for a continuous period of 40 or 50 years um, and provide documents for every year of their residence in the UK. And so that's why many people fell foul of the hostile environment policy. In your kind of answer there, you set out a number of really interesting ranges of factors. Um, the kind of institutional one of the Home Office and also the kind of um, the broader way that policymaking is approached and how that's dealt with. And then also the kind of political challenge. And I want to kind of address all of them. Um, but to start, I guess, on the politics, I think one of the things that you brought out is that um, you cannot point the finger at one or another of the main parties in this. It was a kind of almost, if you like, relative consensus around immigration and immigration enforcement. Is that fair to say? It is. And when you look at the, the, the passage of the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Act, Joe, this makes that clear. Yeah. Because 
in the annex in the report that deals with the right to rent policy, which I was asked to look at specifically, you can see how it is that these Acts of Parliament went through. And, for example, in 2013, as the bill was making its way through Parliament, yes, I, I have identified parliamentarians who raised concerns from all, all of the major parties. Mm. It's interesting to note that um, the Labour Party abstained uh, when it came to the final vote uh, for the 2014 Immigration Act, um, and there were only a few notable Labour Party MPs who, um, who opposed the bill, and uh, so the, the bill was actually passed with a significant majority. And then, yes, the 2016 Immigration Act was much more contested um, and the majority was uh, considerably smaller. But both Acts of Parliament were passed. Um, and as you say, and as I've said in the report, all three of the major parties had adopted a very similar approach when it came to immigration policy. So then to, to kind of touch on the institutional questions um, and the role of the Home Office, I think, to start in this. I mean, is it fair to say that the institution of the Home Office actually kind of has to shoulder most of the kind of accountability for this? The I talk about the Home Office as a government department, but I make it clear in the report that when I talk about the Home Office, I mean both ministers and officials, mm. because they have a shared responsibility for delivering policy um, which achieves the policy objective, but does so efficiently and effectively. So and one of the things that you that you mention in one of your earlier answers, but also in the report, is about the culture of the Home Office. Um, and I think there's one place where you talk about a kind of cultural resistance to hearing contrary views. And I've heard it being described by a former official as um, what they called a bit of a Millwall football club mentality, where they say everyone hates us, but we don't care. I mean, that's a kind of crass kind of example or summing up of it. But I mean, do you think culture was the really big problem here in the culture within the Home Office? There were a number of cultural factors that um, were evident and that contributed to what happened. Um, I've referred to a culture of uh, disbelief. I've also referred to a culture of carelessness. Um, and I've also referred to the approach of the Home Office when it comes to hearing from stakeholders. And the example that you cited of the individual who, who used the, the Millwall analogy is an interesting one because uh, what it demonstrates, and in fact what we saw uh, during the course of the review, was that there, there was a deafness and blindness, if I can put it that way, mm. to dissenting voices. So there were a number of warning signs, both from within the Home Office and outside of the Home Office, um, which uh, led up to the scandal breaking. Uh, but many of the experts, 
external voices did come from the sorts of quarters that uh, the Home Office would not traditionally uh, consider uh, with the degree of seriousness that I would say that they should have done. And we've seen this in other organisations that um, external engagement and genuine engagement can lead to real policy um, benefits. And so various risks were flagged up, but because they came from the quarters where the department felt, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, they weren't given sufficient credence, and that in turn meant that um, those risks weren't taken account of. So th there is a little bit. Um, and if I can talk about the culture of disbelief, we yeah. saw that playing out in many different ways. We saw it playing out in the casework principally. And so for some reason, a, um, a requirement for an individual to provide multiple pieces of evidence, written evidence, for each and every year of residence that they claimed they've lived in the UK for, that had sprung up, that is nowhere in the Home Office's guidance to its caseworkers, nobody could tell us what the origin of, of this requirement was. And I think it was a case in point. It, it showed, it went to that culture of disbelief because if you couldn't uh, provide written evidence to the standard that was set, which was unreasonably high, and no one could point to where this had come from, then you do encourage a culture of disbelief. Uh, so everyone who presents uh, before you potentially is, is looked at um, through that lens. And I talk finally about the culture of carelessness because the, the whole point was, and I've talked about ignorance and, um, and thoughtlessness as well, because the whole point was that the Windrush generation had every right to be here that the officials within the Home Office should have known that because you as the official for your department, you are um, the person who has all the knowledge. So you should have the knowledge and the expertise to be able to say, if you're from such and such a cohort, this particular policy doesn't apply to you. And so we make sure that we put safeguards in place to preserve your status. That didn't occur, and I was struck by the number of officials. Um, and uh, yes, there were a number of officials who who were soul searching and who said, you know, how on earth could this have happened? Mm. But I was struck by the number of officials who said um, we just lost sight of them. And my response is, you shouldn't have lost sight of them. It was an expensive and um, serious, appallingly serious institutional failure. So I want to come on to the kind of institutional failure, and it's a point raised by, uh, and a question raised by Dave Nita, uh, who is a lawyer who sent a question in saying that Judge McPherson found institutional racism in the police in the Stephen Lawrence report. And given that the hostile environment primarily affected black people, particularly through the Windrush scandal. Why did your review stop short of finding institutional racism? Um, and it's clearly, 
you know, something that you discuss in the report and something that you thought about. So I thought it would be interesting to hear your views on on why you stopped short and the extent to which and how you kind of thought about that question. Yes, it was it was a, a matter that I considered very, very carefully and uh, quite extensively. And I've gone into the question of institutional racism in quite some depth in the report because I wanted to be very clear about what I had found and what I was saying about institutional racism, but also very clear about what I hadn't found. Um, and as the question makes clear, um, Judge McPherson carried out a statutory inquiry. So that was set up very differently to my review. The statutory inquiry has various uh, rules and regulations and uh, operates in a court-like uh, way. And people are, are required, mandatory attendance is required. Everyone who participates has the option of being legally represented. And everyone who is uh, interviewed or um, uh, who gives evidence at a statutory inquiry have access to all the evidence, all of the information that's been um, received. So it's a very different setup to the lessons learned review. Mine was a non-statutory informal review and it wasn't set up with the same sorts of legal safeguards. So the people who took part took part voluntarily and, um, and actually provided me with a great deal of helpful information. But, but therefore, because of the parameters of the review and the fact that I wasn't set up uh, like a court, and also I didn't consider the department as a whole, I, I wasn't able to, to do that at all, mm. nor was I able to look at how it was that the Home Office treated cases from non-Windrush applicants as compared to how it treated cases from Windrush generation applicants, I couldn't compare and contrast in the same way that uh, Sir William McPherson was able to. So because of those parameters, I did set out um, what I found um, and, uh, and I set out the aspects that I thought caused me concern um, uh, and amongst them were the, the low levels of knowledge and appreciation of the history of the Windrush generation. Um, I, I did find some troubling uh, approaches to the general scandal, this, this belief that the scandal was um, not foreseeable and it was unavoidable. Well, mm. my review makes clear that that wasn't the case. And as I say, this, this cultural amnesia, if you like, the fact that the department lost sight of this group. Um, so I concluded that race definitely did play a part but I couldn't um, identify uh, those aspects that would have enabled me to have made the conclusion that the whole of the Home, home Office mm. was institutionally racist. Um, and so I, I think, I've, I hope, I've set out what I did see, 
and I fess out what I didn't. Yeah, and one of the, to kind of move away, I guess, from the the, the question of um, culture, if you like, one of the things that's really interesting in an area of kind of big interest to us at the IFG is actually some of the kind of process challenges that existed and the kind of policy making approaches, some of which, uh, again, we've kind of already touched on. And one of the big themes seems to just be sheer complexity, right, of just how the system works and what the rules are, which makes it very difficult for people working within the Home Office and adjudicating on cases to understand exactly what is right, what is wrong, and where these sorts of, um, uh, where the Windrush group fell between the cracks, essentially, of an extremely complex system. Yes, and um, between 1948 and 2016, there were something like 10 major immigration acts. And so on any analysis, that's uh, quite a lot of uh, legislation that was enacted. When yeah. you overlay that with the thousands if not tens of thousands of immigration rules then that the complexity of the immigration landscape becomes clear and i would agree that um it was a, an incredibly big ask um to expect caseworkers to be able to navigate their way through that complexity especially given the number i think there are something like 27 different application routes that can be made for the registration and so this is a really complex landscape and, and that's why one of my recommendations is to simplify the immigration landscape i know that the, the recent commission uh, the law commission has has started to look at uh, the rules but i think there needs to be greater simplification but also there needs to be at least a repository so that the major implications of each and every successive immigration act, they are fully recorded and fully understood. And that is a duty of a government department. And before we kind of start looking at what needs to happen and your kind of key recommendations, there is one other question that I wanted to ask you, which is, and I appreciate that given the scope of the review, this wasn't something that you were able to look at in in any real detail, but just your feeling on whether actually some of the issues around policy making and around process and complexity and possibly culture are true of other parts of government. It's just, you know, the, this is not just about the Home Office, but is more about how some of the processes within government works. Do you think that's fair or do you think there is something very unique about the immigration system? Uh, it's absolutely right that I was asked to carry out a, a, a review of the central government department, and it was one central government department. But I considered that many of the there were many implications, not only for other government departments, but also for local government and mm. um, for, for, the, for the, the third sector, for the private sector. Because what the, what the scandal shows is how through inattention, inaction, and a lack of vigilance, and also a lack of observance of true equality, diversity, and inclusion principles, 
can lead to a tragedy unfolding and and, and ultimately um, lead to a poor level of service for local communities, which could actually end in tragedies. So um, I think there are lessons for other government departments and indeed wider society. And specifically with reference to policy making, uh, I I have to thank the Institute for Government here um, (laughs) for the assistance that uh, you provided over the course of the review, um, because that proved to be a really rich source of information. Um, But it did demonstrate that there are some fundamental principles that should apply to uh, policy making, which were absent here, and which I'm sure uh, will have been absent in other instances involving other organisations. It is correct that in this instance, it's ministers who decide and officials who implement. Mm. And ministers decide the policy objectives and the overall framework. But it's for officials to flag up risks, identify opportunities um, and really test the evidence base uh, in order to devise policy effectively. And I didn't see evidence of um, extensive social policy research or um, anything that would have supported a finding that um, the Home Office had demonstrated the highest possible standards uh, of policy development and implementation. Um, And one of the major, um, I think, disadvantages um, that, that I saw was not only the, the lack of evaluation, uh, lack of effective evaluation, if any evaluation, of in this case the hostile environment uh, policy, but the lack of proactivity in terms of putting that to ministers. Because mm. how do you know whether the policy that's been devised and implemented is actually attaining, um, achieving, sorry, the policy objectives? Unless you, unless you actually evaluate it. Now, sometimes, and I can appreciate, it's difficult to prove the negative, um, but one of the factors that is beyond dispute is that over the period of the hostile environment during the coalition government and the subsequent um, conservative government, the um, levels of re- removals uh, were actually going down. Uh, they weren't going up. And so what were the metrics, what were the measures of success um, if they were that removals um, would, would, would increase? Well, um, that certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't achieved. And so I bring it back to it's absolutely essential that the policy is evaluated uh, and properly implemented to ensure that it's achieving the policy objective and that it's doing so efficiently and effectively. To, to come on to them, kind of what, so what, what do we need to do and what needs to happen in your recommendations? I want to start on the kind of the question around culture and the, the point that you made around the culture of disbelief and the culture of carelessness. And there's a question that we got through from Baroness Sally Hamwe, who is the Liberal Democrat immigration spokesperson in the Lords. And she was wondering, 
What do you think is required to change this approach, to change this culture of disbelief and carelessness? What are some of the practical things that can and do need to change within the Home Office to address these issues? The starting point for me is a genuine acceptance uh, of that something went wrong, that it shouldn't have gone wrong, and that something needs to change. And I've said that some of the uh, changes will be tangible and intangible. So it's part four of my report um, where I refer to this. Now, some of the tangible um, aspects that I would uh, point to are, firstly, that my recommendations will have been implemented, um, but, but also that there are some hard uh, measures that can be looked at such as uh, outcomes, uh, to what extent has the level of successful appeals gone down? Because if the casework decisions are being made uh, properly, then uh, the number of successful appeals um, should go down. Now, of course, there might be factors that are brought to the appeal court's attention after the tribunal hearing for which you can't legislate. But I would still have thought that the current levels, uh, the high level for successful appeals, must go beyond uh, simply new evidence being brought. They, mm. they must re revert back to the quality of casework decision-making. And the 168 case files that we looked at and that uh, I set out in detail in Annex G of the report make clear to me that I saw overall a poor standard uh, of casework handling and also decision making. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, a greater and better evaluation of policy, that's another tangible aspect, because if the policy is being developed on the basis of social policy research that has been rigorously undertaken, then um, the point is that that should translate through to better informed policy, whereby there is a broader reference to stakeholders and to communities who might be affected, which should feed back into uh, better quality uh, po policy decision making as well. Some of the intangible cultural aspects I said in part four of the report relate to the look and feel of the department. And mm. what do I mean by that? Um, a, a culture, the culture of an organization is, is always readily apparent. And I say this as someone who has um, been fortunate enough to run organizations, but also to inspect uh, a, a large variety of uh, a number of uh, organizations. And there is a certain feel to um, an organization that has a values-led uh, culture where it clearly behaviors are important, the overall value set is important, the mission has, has been um, bought into by all levels of the organization. And you see that challenge and you see that everyone um, from the top to the bottom, emulate those those values and, and those behaviours. So they're more intangible, but they are absolutely essential.
essential uh, to ensure that the department undergoes that cultural shift. And one of the other interesting things you, you mentioned about the kind of organisation and the, the look and feel is the level of diversity of uh, the organisation. And I mean, this is, I think, true for not just the Home Office, but um, most government departments and I think I might in saying that actually the Home Office is you know is very diverse as a workforce at a more junior level but really not so much at the top and is that one of the things that you think needs to be addressed within the Home Office and I guess you know within government more widely and what are some of the things that you think could be done in order to do that? I've um, referred to equality, diversity and inclusion as being absolutely essential for the effective running of uh, an organisation. And I think, um, as I said in the report, it, it has been increasingly accepted that this is the case. The Home Office is in a, 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 an encouraging position in as much as uh, across all government departments, it has the largest number of uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic staff. Certainly as a percentage, I think it's about 25% of its staff are BAME. And uh, so that's encouraging because the pipeline is there. However, unfortunately, and as you say, in keeping with other government departments, in keeping with um, the private sector as well, mm. uh, and uh, in keeping with local government, um, as you go further up the, um, the, the organisational ladder, that representation changes. So, yes, you've got 25% of... Uh, BAME staff, but they are in the Home Office concentrated in the two most junior grades. And then when you go up into the senior civil service and on, then you are talking about single figures. Now, given that the department has this pipeline, I think it's important that it um, observing the uh, requirements to, to ensure that it's acting within the legislation, I think it's important for it to identify and take on board positive action um, pathways and opportunities that will encourage that talent and ensure that when people are in, uh, appointed into more senior posts, that it doesn't end there because, it, you know, that there is no room for complacency here. It's, mm. it's not a numbers game. It is a, a question of what, yes, what are the numbers, but also what's the story behind those numbers? So to what extent are you supporting uh, individuals who come from diverse backgrounds to make a success of that senior appointment um, because without that uh, structured support then you're in danger of setting people up to fail and you're in danger of um, actually not achieving the objective which is to encourage greater participation on the part of a diverse workforce in the delivery of public services because I, I will just say this I would have been surprised if, as the Windrush scandal has started to emerge, if there had been persons of colour, and particularly who might have come from a Caribbean background, in those senior leadership positions, 
I would have been surprised if they hadn't said, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Do we perhaps mm. need to look at this? And the very fact that that wasn't the case, that there wasn't that questioning, that, that there wasn't that appreciative inquiry. You know, I spoke to very junior and very senior members of the Home Office and some of the junior caseworkers have said, you know, we were flagging these cases up, but people didn't listen. And that's mm. what, um, what we've got to guard against happening in the future. Uh, and so f finally on, on this question, before we get into, I want to just ask you quickly a couple of questions about what it was like running the inquiry, but we, before, uh, sorry, running the review, but before we get into that, we had a couple of questions come in um, about your advice really for the role that parliamentarians could play but also mayors and local authority leaders in actually pressing for some of the changes and the recommendations that you made to be implemented. I was asked to carry out a, a review of the Home Office. So it was a central government department review but I do think that there are implications, uh, as I've said, for other government departments and uh, for local government. And in, in terms of both, I would hope that they take account of the points that I've made, because mm. that lack of knowledge and appreciation of a particular cohort in society who made a significant contribution to the post-war effort, that is a tragedy that should be avoided at all costs. But it will manifest itself, different issues will manifest themselves in different ways. And so some of the people that I interviewed had suggested, for example, that we completely change the national curriculum so as to enable all of us to understand the significant contributions that Windrush Generation have made to British society, but also that there's a broader historical appreciation of migration both into the UK and out of the UK, because there is a really rich um, history there from which we could all potentially benefit. So I think there are lessons for parliamentarians and for local authority leaders and mayors. I mean, if, if, goodness gracious, if, um, if the national curriculum was changed, uh, that would be great, but I, I couldn't make such uh, recommendations. But I think that parliamentarians, I would hope, um, would accept that there is a shared responsibility for scandal. Uh, so uh, I was very assiduous in making it clear what the division of responsibility was between ministers, officials and special advisers and that responsibility for what happened was shared. So I would hope that the starting point would be that acceptance of shared responsibility and then active engagement with communities because I, I make recommendations about engaging with the communities who've been affected and understanding from their perspective uh, what happened because that was the singular most powerful experience from the review that I took. Hearing those stories 
made me think, my goodness me, how could this have happened? And I'm sure that if parliamentarians and senior officials were exposed to the same sorts of events, that would probably heighten their sense of, yes, we've really got to get this right. Yeah, and so that's kind of an interesting um, kind of segue into this uh, last couple of questions that I wanted to ask about what it was like actually running the inquiry. And the first one is, I guess I'm interested in how you got into this huge challenge, essentially. I mean, how you started to unpack it, given that, you know, you have 300 pages that spans over 50 years, essentially. Um, did you set out kind of guiding principles at the beginning to guide you um, and to, to kind of direct your your and the team's work? And then linked to that, what most surprised you or shocked you as you as you went through the process? Well, I, I set out not having a, an idea as to how I was going to approach it at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> thinking, oh my goodness me, how on earth am I going to do this? Um, (laughs) I started just by speaking to people who'd been affected because I thought that will give me a sort of framework from which to to work. And um, so that was my starting point. And I really was moved by the accounts that, that I heard. And I thought, that's how that that was that, that was when it all came together for me. Uh, I wanted to tell the stories of the the people who'd been good enough to to share their experiences with me, and I thought if I ground this, if if I make sure that I base this on the experiences of those who've been affected, then that makes it a you know a real account of lived experiences and from there that should help in terms of of pointing me in the direction of of where to go next so that was my starting point that was my structure and it Mm. proved to be my guiding principle this was always about telling the stories of people who have been affected but also following the evidence where it led me and I had to be prepared to to do that you know because one thing that was abundantly clear to me was that this was a highly contentious matter and because of that um, various people would have really strong views across the spectrum and so I could not be you know in any way deflected from what I had been asked to do which was to identify how it happened and identify what needed to change. So that did prove to be my my guiding principle, the 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 experience of those who were affected. And then the final question, uh, which is a good one to end, which is one that has been sent in by Susan Tomato, um, which is what advice would you give others on how to deliver difficult messages and maintain independence when leading work on intensely sensitive, politicised or career-limiting issues? <laughs> well, we'll, see, we'll, we'll see how career-limiting this proves to be. Um, <laughs> I don't think she was implying it would be, but... <laughs> but, but, but it is an important question. Um, and uh, of course, this this was this was highly contentious. Um, 
and it was it was difficult navigating my way through the review and uh, making sure that I did it uh, in the way that I wanted to do it and not in the way that others might have wanted me to do it or expected me to do it. Mm. And I was fortunate enough in that I, I, I do, it, with my day job, I am used you know, I'm a Crown appointee, so I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not employed by uh, a government department. And so that brings with it a degree of self-assurance. But also what I do is I carry out independent inspections. This was a review, so, so this was somewhat different. But the, the question of independence was never in, never in question for me. It was, mm. this is how I'm going to do it. If the evidence says X, I will say X. If the evidence says Y, I will say Y. And I've no doubt that whatever I say, there will be those who don't agree with what I've said and who may be critical. But that's entirely for them, you know, that's entirely their prerogative. As far as I was concerned, as long as I could look myself in the mirror and be satisfied that I carried out the review to the best of my ability independently and I followed where the evidence led me and I wasn't afraid to say what, what I thought needed to be said, whether it was acceptable to some or unacceptable to, to others. That was all that I could do. And yes, that, that, that might have been career-limiting, who knows, but um, <laughs> I was very comfortable with, with where I arrived. I'm certainly sure it's not. It's not career limiting. It's definitely an excellent report. So I think that's probably a, a good note for us to end on. If you want any more information on Wendy's review, you can find uh, the full near to 300 pages online. Um, we at the Institute for Government have written on, as Wendy mentioned, both policymaking in government and also some of the challenges facing the Home Office and the immigration system. So if you are interested in either of those, please do go onto our website. Um, and thank you very much for listening. And we look forward to you joining us for future IFG live events. And finally, thank you very, very much, uh, Wendy, for joining us. It's been thank fascinating you very to hear your insight. Oh, thank you very Thanks. much for, for asking me to do it. Thank you very much for listening. If you like this podcast, please like, comment and subscribe to IFG Live. And for more information, please visit our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Thank you.